As the waning light of summer gives in to the prolonged twilight of autumn, and the warm embrace of September sun gives in to the crisp chill of October's rust, we turn our attention now more acutely to the high strangeness that goes bump in the night. Just remember, there are things out there in the darkness, so lock your doors and throw up your protective wards. From the jack-o'-lantern's twisted grimace to the roots of all things Brothers Grimm, it's almost trick-or-treat time again. And although we're technically on a break from season three, the monsters in your walls, the ghosts in your attics, and the goblins in your garden are just now getting up to their ghoulish delights. So we're here to remind you, everything is not okay. Dim the lights, light a candle, and come dine with the devils. Walk with the zombies, read the forbidden books, and take pictures of the gremlins. I'll be your host for this evening's unholy adventures. My name is Alan Bishop, writer, historian, Tinker, Storyteller, and The Alchemist of Indiana's Black Forest. And you're listening to, no, in fact you're experiencing, if you have ghosts, you have everything. Tonight, on If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, we continue our bonus spooky season material with a little something special. Academics, philologists, lexicographers, and authors. The Brothers Grimm, Jacob, and Wilhelm are household names at this point. Entire corporations have hedged their animation and live-action bets on the collected works of these two German folktale collectors and editors. The Brothers' Tales spun and other authors' voluminous works, indeed and of course uncredited in the time prior to copyright laws, and even used as war propaganda by the Nazis in World War II. We can thank the Brothers for popularizing stories such as Cinderella Sleeping Beauty, Little Red Riding Hood, Hansel and Gretel, The Frog Prince, Rapunzel, and Snow White. But what do we know of the brothers themselves? Or the origins of the oral stories that they collected or which inspired their literary stories? Were these truly stories for children? Were they intended to be written in a literary style? Or is and was their charm in the Volkspeak? Our folk speak, the Grimms took great pains to reproduce in their writings, all the way down to regional dialects, as they were orated for hundreds of years previous. Were all the stories even entirely German in origin? And just how different were the collected versions prior to editing for children and a conservative audience? Did they even evolve after initial publication? 
Jacob Ludwig Carl Grimm and Wilhelm Carl Grimm were born on the 4th of January 1785 and 24th February 1786 respectively in Hanu in the Landgraviate of Hesse Castle within the Holy Roman Empire or present-day Germany to Philip Wilhelm Grimm, a jurist, and Dorothea Grimm, nay Zimmer, daughter of a castle city councilman. They were the second and third eldest surviving siblings in a family of nine children, three of whom died in infancy. In 1791, the family moved to the countryside town of Steinau during Philip's employment there as a district magistrate. The family became prominent members of the community, residing in a large home surrounded by fields. Biographer Jack Zipes writes that the brothers were happy in Steinau and clearly fond of country life. The children were educated at home by private tutors, receiving strict instructions as Lutherans, which instilled in both a lifelong religious faith. Later, they attended local schools. In 1796, Philip Grimm died of pneumonia, causing great poverty for such a large family. Dorothea was forced to relinquish the brother's servants and large house, depending on financial support from her father and her sister, who was then the first lady-in-waiting at the court of William I, the Elector of Hesse. Jacob was the eldest living son, forced at age 11 to quickly assume adult responsibilities. For the next two years, the two brothers then followed the advice of their grandfather, who continually exhorted them to be industrious men. In 1798, they attended the Friedrichs Gymnasium and Castle, which had been arranged and paid for by their aunts. By then, they were without a male provider, as their grandfather died that year. This forced them to rely entirely on each other and become exceptionally close. The two brothers differed in temperament. Jacob was introspective, and Wilhelm was outgoing, although he did often suffer from ill health. But they shared a strong work ethic and excelled in their studies. In Castle, they became acutely aware of their inferior social status relative to quote-unquote high-born students who received more attention. Each brother graduated at the head of his class, Jacob in 1803 and Wilhelm in 1804. He did miss a year of school due to scarlet fever. After graduation from the Frederick Gymnasium, the brothers attended the University of Marburg. The university was small, only about 200 students, and they were painfully aware that students of the lower social status were not going to be treated equally. The brothers were actually disqualified from admission because of their social standing, and they had to request dispensation to study law. While wealthier students received stipends, the brothers were excluded even from tuition aid. Their poverty kept them from student activities or social life. However, their outsider status worked in their favor and they pursued their studies with extra vigor. They were inspired by their law professor, Friedrich von Savigny, who awakened them in them an interest in history and philology. They studied medieval German literature and shared Savigny's desire to see the unification of the 200 German principalities into one single state. Through Savigny, the brothers were introduced to the ideas of Johann Gottfried Herder, who thought that German literature should revert to simpler forms, which he defined as Volksposi, or natural poetry, as opposed to Kunstposi, or artistic poetry. The brothers dedicated themselves with great enthusiasm to their studies, about which Wilhelm wrote in his autobiography, The Ardor with Which We Studied Old German, helped us overcome the spiritual depression of those days. Jacob was still financially responsible for his mother and brother and young, younger siblings in 1805, so he accepted a post in Paris as a research assistant to von Savigny. On his return to Marburg, he was forced to abandon his studies to support the family, whose poverty was so extreme that food was often scarce, and take a job with the Hessian War Commission. 
In a letter written to his aunt at this time, Wilhelm wrote of their circumstances. We five people eat only three portions and only once a day. Jacob found full-time employment in 1808 when he was appointed court librarian to the King of Westphalia and went on to become a librarian and castle. After their mother's death that year, he became fully responsible for his younger siblings and arranged and paid for his brother Ludwig's studies at art school and for Wilhelm's extended visit to Hal to seek treatment for heart and respiratory ailments, following which Wilhelm joined Jacob as librarian and castle. At Brentano's request, the brothers had begun collecting folktales in a very cursory manner by 1807. According to Jack Zipes, at this point, the brothers were unable to devote all their energies to the research and really didn't have a clear idea the significance of collecting these folktales in this initial phase. During their employment as librarians, which paid little but did afford them ample time for research, the brothers experienced a productive period of scholarship and published several books between 1812 and 1830. In 1812, they published their first volume of 86 folktales, Kinder und Hashmarschen, followed quickly by two volumes of German legends and a volume of early literary history and went on to publish works about Danish and Irish folktales and also Norse mythology, while continuing to edit the German folktale collection. These works became so widely recognized that the brothers received honorary doctorates from universities in Marburg, Berlin, and Brissau. In 1830, the brothers were both overlooked when the post of chief librarian came available. This disappointed them greatly. They moved the household to Göttingen, in the kingdom of Hanover, where they took employment at the University of Göttingen. Jacob as a professor and head librarian, and Wilhelm as a professor. Over the next seven years, the brothers continued to research, write, and publish, and in 1835, Jacob published the well-regarded German mythology. Wilhelm continued to edit and prepare the third edition of Kinder unter Hoschermann for publication. The two brothers taught German studies at the university and became very well respected. After joining the rest of the Göttingen Seven in protest in 1837, the brothers lost their university posts. And the 1830s really were a period of political upheaval and peasant revolt in Germany, which led to the movement for democratic reform known as Young Germany. The brothers were not directly aligned with the Young Germans, but they and five of their colleagues reacted against the demands of Ernest Augustus, King of Hanover, who in 1837 dissolved the Parliament of Hanover and demanded oaths of allegiance from civil servants, including professors. For refusing to sign the oath, the seven professors were dismissed and three were deported from Hanover, including Jacob, who went to Castle, where he was later joined by Wilhelm, his wife, and their four children. In 1840, the brothers were offered posts at the University of Berlin after von Savigny and Bettina von Arnim appealed successfully to Frederick William IV of Prussia on the brothers' behalf. They were offered stipends to continue their research, and once they had established their households in Berlin, they directed their efforts towards the work on the German dictionary and continued to publish their research. Jacob turned his attention to researching German legal traditions and the history of the German language, which was published in the late 1840s and early 1850s. Meanwhile, Wilhelm began researching medieval literature while editing new editions of Hashmarschen. After the revolutions of 1848 and the German states, the brothers were elected to the civil parliament. Jacob became a prominent member of the National Assembly at Mainz. Their political activities were short-lived, however, as their hope for a unified Germany dwindled and their disenchantment grew. By the late 1840s, Jacob had resigned his university position and published the history of the German language. Wilhelm continued at his university post until 1852. After he retired from teaching, the brothers devoted themselves to the German dictionary for the rest of their lives. Wilhelm died of an infection in Berlin on the 16th of December 1859, and Jacob, deeply upset at his brother's death, became increasingly reclusive. He continued working on the dictionary until his own death on 20th of September, 1863. Zipes writes of the Grimm's Dictionary 
and of their very large body of work. Quote-unquote, symbolically, the last word was fruit, or fruit. Regarding the folktales themselves, the brothers began collecting and publishing their tales as a reflection of German cultural identity during a time when romanticism, romantic nationalism, and trends in valuing popular culture in the early 19th century revived interest in fairy tales. The brothers were directly influenced by Brentano and von Arnhem, who edited and adapted the folk songs of Des Nabin Wunderhorn, the boy's magic horn or cornucopia. The brothers began the collection with the purpose of creating a scholarly treatise of traditional stories in order to preserve the stories as they had been handed down from generation to generation, a practice being threatened by increased industrialization. The Grimm's appropriated stories as being uniquely German, such as Little Red Riding Hood, which had existed in many versions and regions throughout Europe, because they believed that such stories were reflections of the Germanic culture. Furthermore, the brothers saw fragments of old religions and faiths reflected in the stories, which they thought continued to exist and survive through the telling of such stories. They began in earnest in 1806, helping their friend Brentano collect folk stories for his collection. Their methodology involved inviting storytellers to their home and transcribing what they heard. These tales were heavily modified in transcription. Many had roots in previously written sources. Nonetheless, the friend never made use of the manuscript the Grimm's assembled for him. Although they were primarily collecting tales from peasants, many tales did come from the middle class or aristocratic acquaintances. Wilhelm's wife, Henrietta Doritha, Wilde and her family with their nursery maid told the brothers some of the more well-known tales, such as Hansel and Gretel and Sleeping Beauty. Wilhelm collected some tales after befriending August von Hochstausen, whom he visited in 1811 in Westphalia, where he heard stories from von Hochstausen's circle of friends. Several of the storytellers were of Huguenot ancestry, telling tales of French origin, such as those told to the Grimm's by Marie Hassenflug, an educated woman of French Huguenot ancestry. And it is probable that these informants were familiar with Perrault's Histories aux Contes du Temps Passé. I don't speak French, by the way, guys. I apologize. I don't speak German either, so I apologize for all of these mistakes. Other tales were collected from Dorothea Fihaman, the wife of a middle-class tailor and also of French descent. Despite her middle-class background and the first English translation, she was characterized as a peasant and given the name Grammar Gretel. At least one tale, Gewater Todd, Grim Reaper, was provided by composer Wilhelmine Schwartzel, with whom Wilhelm had a lengthy correspondence. According to scholars such as Ruth Bodingheimer and Maria Tatar, some of the tales probably originated in written form during the medieval period, with writers such as Straparola and Boccaccio, but were modified in the 17th century and again rewritten by the Grimm's. Moreover, Tatar writes that the brothers' goal of preserving and shaping the tales as something uniquely German at a time of French occupation was a form of intellectual resistance, and in so doing, they really established a methodology for collecting and preserving folklore that set the model followed later by writers throughout Europe during periods of the occupation. From 1807 onwards, the brothers added to the collection. Jacob would establish the framework, maintained through many iterations, from 1815 until his death. Wilhelm assumed sole responsibility for editing and rewriting the tales. He made the tales stylistically similar, added dialogue, and removed pieces that might detract from a rustic tone, improved the plots, and incorporated psychological motifs. Ronald Murphy writes in The Owl, The Raven, and the Dove that the brothers, and in particular Wilhelm, also added religious and spiritual motifs to the tales, and he believes that Wilhelm gleaned bits from old Germanic faiths, Norse mythology, Roman and Greek mythology, 
and biblical stories that he reshaped. Over the years, Wilhelm worked extensively on the prose. He expanded and added detail to the stories to the point that many of them grew to twice the length that they were in the earliest published editions. In the later editions, Wilhelm polished the language to make it more enticing to a Borgo's audience, eliminated sexual elements, and added Christian elements. After 1819, he began writing original tales for children, while children were not initially considered the primary audience, and adding didactic elements to existing tales. Some changes were made in light of unfavorable reviews, particularly from those who objected that not all the tales were suitable for children because of scenes of violence and sexuality. He worked to modify plots for many of the stories. For example, in Rapunzel, in the first edition of Kinder, clearly shows a sexual relationship between the prince and the girl in the tower, which he edited out in subsequent editions. Tatar writes that morals were added. In the second edition, a king's regret was added to the scene in which his wife is to be burned at the stake, for example, and often the characters in the tales were amended to appear more German. Stories over time continue to be edited, to be considered age-appropriate, with the more violent elements toned down and overt sexual sexualization removed from the stories. Edits were also made to make the stories more stylistically similar, preach certain moralistic ideals, and include elements of religion and spirituality. In the Grimm's original version of Snow White, the queen is little Snow White's mother, not her stepmother. Yet even so, she orders her huntsman to kill Snow White, her biological daughter, and bring home the child's lungs and liver so that she can eat them. The story ends with the queen dancing at Snow White's wedding, wearing a pair of red-hot iron shoes that kill her. Another story, the Goose Girl, has a servant being stripped naked and pushed into a barrel studded with sharp nails, pointing inwards, and then rolled down the street. The Grimm's version of the Frog Prince describes the princess throwing the frog against the wall instead of kissing him. To some extent, the cruelty and violence may have been a reflection of medieval culture from which the tales originated, such as scenes of witches burning as described in the Six Swans. Tales which glorify the role of the female spinster are particularly important and are used as a metaphor in the brothers' works. In some ways, for spinning a tale as a metaphor, the oral history and encoded meaning and messages built into the stories that the ladies of the house would tell while working on their spinning, passing down such important premises of German culture generation after generation. And while many of the original sources were from wider Europe, Alsace in particular, the Grimm's did rewrite and rework the stories in such a way as to interweave their German cultural values so completely as to make them seem native to Germany. The brothers came to see culture as tied to language and regarded the purest cultural expressions and the grammar of a language. They moved away from Brentano's practice and that of the other romanticists who frequently changed original oral styles of folk tales to a more literary style, which the brothers considered artificial. They thought that the style of the people, the Volk as it were, reflected a natural and divinely inspired poetry, as opposed to the artifice of art poetry, which they considered artificially constructed. As literary historians and scholars, they delved into the origins of stories and attempted to retrieve them from the oral tradition without loss of the original traits of the oral language. They strongly believed that the dream of national unity and independence relied on a full knowledge of the cultural past that was reflected in the folklore. They worked to discover and crystallize a kind of Germanness in the stories that they collected and the belief that folklore contained kernels of mythologies and legends crucial to understanding the essence of German culture. In examining culture from a philological point of view, they sought to establish connections between German law, culture, and local beliefs. The Grimm's considered the tales to have origins in traditional Germanic folklore, which they thought had been quote-unquote contaminated by later literary tradition. In the shift from the oral tradition to the printed book, Tales were translated from regional dialects to standard German. 
Over the course of the many modifications and revisions, however, the Grimms sought to reintroduce regionalisms, dialects, and Low German to the tales, to reintroduce the language of the original form of the oral tale. Little Red Cap Once upon a time there was a sweet little girl. Everyone who saw her liked her, but most of all her grandmother, who did not know what to give the child next. Once she gave her a little cap made of red velvet, because it suited her so well, and she wanted to wear it all the time. She came to be known as Little Red Cap. One day her mother said to her, Come, little red cap. Here's a piece of cake and a bottle of wine. Take them to your grandmother. She's sick and weak, and they'll do her well. Mind your manners and give her my greetings. Behave yourself on the way. Do not leave the path, or you might fall down and break the glass, and then there will be nothing for your grandmother. And when you enter her parlor, don't forget to say good morning. Don't peer into all the corners first. I'll do everything just right, said Little Red Cap, shaking her mother's hand. The grandmother lived out in the woods, a half hour from the village. When Little Red Cap entered the woods, a wolf came up to her. She didn't know what a wicked animal he was, and was not afraid of him. Good day to you, Little Red Cap. Thank you, wolf. Where are you going so early, Little Red Cap? To grandmother's. And what are you carrying under your apron? Grandmother is sick and weak, and I'm taking her some cake and wine. We baked yesterday, and they should be good for her and give her strength. Little Red Cap, where does your grandmother live? Her house is a good quarter hour from here in the woods, under the three large oak trees. There's a hedge of hazel bushes there. You must know the place, said Little Red Cap. The wolf thought to himself. Now that sweet young thing is a tasty bite for me. She'll taste even better than the old woman. You must be sly, and you can catch them both. He walked along a little while with Little Red Cap. Then he said, Little Red Cap, just look at the beautiful flowers that are all around us. Why don't you go and take a look? And I don't believe you can hear how beautifully the birds are singing. You're walking along as though you were on your way to school. It's very beautiful in the woods. Little Red Cap opened her eyes, and when she saw the sunbeams dancing to and fro through the trees, and how the ground was covered with beautiful flowers, she thought, if I take a fresh bouquet to Grandmother, she'll be very pleased. Anyway, it's still early, and I'll be home on time. And she ran off the path into the woods looking for flowers. Each time she picked one, she thought that she could see an even more beautiful one a little way off and she ran after it, going further and further into the woods. But the wolf ran straight to the grandmother's house and knocked on the door. Who's there? Little Red Cap, I'm bringing you some cake and wine. Open the door. Just press the latch, called out the grandmother. I'm too weak to get up. The wolf pressed the latch, and the door opened. He stepped inside went straight to the grandmother's bed and ate her up. Then he put on her clothes, put her cap on his head, got into her bed and pulled the curtain shut. Little Red Cap had run after the flowers. After she had gathered so many that she could not carry anymore, she remembered her grandmother and then continued on her way to her house. She found to her surprise that the door was open. She walked into the parlor Everything looked so strange that she thought, Oh my God, why am I so afraid? I usually like it at grandmother's. She called out, Good morning, but received no answer. Then she went to the bed and pulled back the curtains. Grandmother was lying there with her cat pulled down over her face and looking very strange. Oh, grandmother, 
What big ears you have. All the better to hear you with. Oh, grandmother. What big eyes you have. All the better to see you with. Oh, grandmother. What big hands you have. All the better to grab you with. Oh, grandmother. What a horribly big mouth you have. All the better to eat you with. The wolf had scarcely finished speaking when he jumped from the bed with a single leap and ate up poor little Redcap. As soon as the wolf had satisfied his desires, he climbed back into bed, fell asleep, and began to snore very loudly. A huntsman was just passing by. He thought, the old woman is snoring so loudly. You better see if something is wrong with her. He stepped into the parlor, and when he approached the bed, he saw the wolf lying there. So here I find you, you old sinner. I've been hunting you for a long time. He was about to aim his rifle when it occurred to him that the wolf might have eaten the grandmother and that she still might be rescued. So instead of shooting, he took a pair of scissors and began to cut open the wolf's belly. After a few cuts, he saw the red cap shining through. And after a few more cuts, the girl jumped out crying. Oh, I was so frightened. It was so dark inside the wolf's body. And then the grandmother came out as well, alive, but hardly able to breathe. Then little Redcap fetched some large stones. She filled the wolf's body with them. And when he woke up and tried to run away, the stones were so heavy that he immediately fell down dead. The three of them were happy. The huntsman skinned the wolf and went home with the pelt. The grandmother ate the cake and drank the wine that little Redcap had brought. And little Redcap thought, as long as I live, I will never leave the path and run off into the woods by myself if mother tells me not to. In addition to this story, the Grimms also tell how little Redcap was taking some baked things to her grandmother another time when another wolf spoke to her and wanted her to leave the path. But little Redcap took care and went straight to grandmother's. She told her that she had seen the wolf and that he had wished her a good day, but had stared at her in a wicked manner. If we hadn't been on a public road, he would have eaten me up, she said. Come, said the grandmother. Let's lock the door so he can't get in. Soon afterward, the wolf knocked on the door and called out, Open up, grandmother. It's little Redcap and I'm bringing you some baked things. They remained silent and did not open the door. Greyhead crept around the house several times. Finally, he jumped on the roof. He wanted to wait until Little Redcap went home that evening, then follow her and eat her up in the darkness. But the grandmother saw what he was up to. There was a large stone trough in front of the house. Fetch a bucket, Little Redcap, she said to the child. Yesterday, I cooked some sausage. Carry the water that I boiled them with to the trough. Little Redcap carried water until the large, large trough was clear full. The smell of sausage rose into the wolf's nose. He sniffed and looked down, stretching his neck so long that he could no longer hold himself, and he began to slide. He slid off the roof, fell into the trough and drowned, and Little Redcap returned home happily, and no one harmed her. Turning now to the French origins of some of these stories. So Charles Perrault via wikipedia.org. 12th of January, 1628 through the 16th of May, 1703, was a French author and member of the Academy Francaise. He laid the foundations for a new literary genre, the fairy tale, with his works derived from earlier folk tales Published in his 1697, Stories or Tales from Past Times. The best known of his tales include Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella, Puss in Boots, Sleeping Beauty, and Bluebeard. Some of Peralt's versions of old stories influenced the German versions published by the Brothers Grimm more than 100 years later. 
stories continue to be printed and have been adapted to most entertainment formats. Perrault was an influential figure in the 17th century French literary scene and was the leader of the modern faction during the quarrel of the ancients and the moderns. Perrault had written Little Red Riding Hood as a warning to readers about strangers preying on young girls walking through the forest. He concludes his fairy tale with a moral, cautioning women and young girls about the dangers of trusting men. He states, Watch out if you haven't learned that tame wolves are the most dangerous of all. Perrault warns the readers about the manipulation and false appearances some men portray. I say wolf, for all wolves are not of the same sort. There is one kind with an amenable disposition, neither noisy nor hateful nor angry, but tame, obliging, and gentle, following the young maids in the streets, even into their homes. Alas, who does not know that these gentle wolves are of all such creatures the most dangerous? Indeed, in Peralt's version, the girl gets into bed with the wolf and is devoured lacking the happy ending found in most current versions of the story. Once upon a time, there lived in a certain village, a little country girl, the prettiest creature who was ever seen. Her mother was excessively fond of her, and her grandmother doted on her still more. This good woman had a little red riding hood made for her. It suited the girl so extremely well that everybody called her Little Red Riding Hood. One day, her mother, having made some cakes, said to her, Go, my dear, and see how your grandmother is doing, for I hear she has been very ill. Take her a cake and this little pot of butter. Little Red Riding Hood set out immediately to go to her grandmother, who lived in another village. As she was going through the wood, she met with a wolf, who had a very great mind to eat her up, but he dared not because of some woodcutters working nearby in the forests. He asked her where she was going. The poor child, who did not know that it was dangerous to stay and talk to a wolf, said to him, I am going to see my grandmother and carry her a cake and a little pot of butter for my mother. Does she live far off, said the wolf. Oh, I say, answered Little Red Riding Hood, it is beyond that mill you see there, at the first house in the village. Well, said the wolf, and I'll go and see her too. I'll go this way, and you go that, and we shall see who will be there first. The wolf ran as fast as he could, taking the shortest path, and the little girl took a roundabout way, entertaining herself by gathering nuts, running after butterflies, and gathering bouquets of little flowers. It was not long before the wolf arrived at the old woman's house. He knocked at the door, tap, tap. Who's there? Your grandchild, Little Red Riding Hood, replied the wolf, counterfeiting her voice. Who has brought you a cake and a little pot of butter sent you by mother? The good grandmother, who was in bed because she was somewhat ill, cried out, pull the bobbin and the latch will go up. The wolf pulled the bobbin and the door opened and then he immediately fell upon the good woman and ate her up in a moment, for it had been more than three days since he had eaten. He then shut the door and got into the grandmother's bed, expecting Little Red Riding Hood, who came sometime afterwards and knocked at the door. Tap, tap, who's there? Little Red Riding Hood, hearing the big voice of the wolf, was at first afraid, but believing her grandmother had a cold and was hoarse, answered, it is your grandchild, Little Red Riding Hood, who has brought you a cake and a little pot of butter mother sends you. The wolf cried out to her, softening his voice as much as he could. Pull the bobbin and the latch will go up. Little Red Riding Hood pulled the bobbin and the door opened. The wolf, seeing her come in, said to her, hiding himself under the bedclothes, put the cake and little pot of butter upon the stool and come get into bed with me. Little Red Riding Hood took off her clothes and got into bed. She was greatly amazed to see how her grandmother looked in her night clothes and said to her, Grandmother, what big arms you have. All the better to hug you with, my dear. Grandmother, 
what big legs you have. All the better to run with, my child. Grandmother, what big ears you have. All the better to hear you with, my child. Grandmother, what big eyes you have. All the better to see you with, my child. Grandmother, what big teeth you've got. All the better to eat you up with. And saying these words, this wicked wolf fell upon Little Red Riding Hood and ate her all up. The moral? Children, especially attractive, well-bred young ladies, should never talk to strangers. For if they should do so, they may well provide dinner for a wolf. I say wolf, but there are various kinds of wolves. There are also those who are charming, quiet, polite, unassuming, complacent, and sweet, who pursue young women at home and in the streets. And unfortunately, it is these gentle wolves who are the most dangerous ones of all. And yet always in threes and sevens. The source for this version of the story is Andrew Lang in the Red Fairy Book, the fifth edition. Published by Longman's Green, London and New York, 1895. The source for the story, Charles Morellis. The true history of Little Golden Hood. You know the tale of poor little Red Riding Hood? That the wolf deceived and devoured with her cake, her little butter can, and her grandmother. Well, the true story happened quite differently, as we know now. And first of all, the little girl was called, and is still called, Little Golden Hood. Secondly, it was not she, nor the good granddame, but the wicked wolf, who was in the end caught and devoured. Only listen, the story begins something like the tale. There was once a little peasant girl, pretty and nice as a star in its season. Her real name was Blanchette, but she was more often called Little Golden Hood on account of a wonderful little cloak with a hood, gold and fire-colored, which she always had on. This little hood was given her by her grandmother, who was so old that she did not know her age. It ought to bring her good luck. For it was made of a ray of sunshine, she said. And as the good old woman was considered something of a witch, everyone thought the little hood rather bewitched too. And so it was, as you will see. One day the mother said to the child, Let us see, my little golden hood, if you know how to find your way by yourself. You shall take this good piece of cake to your grandmother for a Sunday treat tomorrow. You will ask her how she is, and come back at once, without stopping the chatter on the way with people you don't know. Do you quite understand? I quite understand, replied Blanchette gaily, and off she went with the cake, quite proud of her errand. But the grandmother lived in another village, and there was a big wood to cross before getting there. At a turn of the road under the trees suddenly, who goes there? friend wolf he had seen the child start alone and the villain was waiting to devour her when at the same moment he perceived some woodcutters who might observe him and he changed his mind instead of falling upon blanchette he came frisking up to her like a good dog tis you my nice little golden hood said he so the little girl stops to talk with the wolf who for all that she did not know in the least. You know me then, she said. What is your name? My name is Friend Wolf. And where are you going thus, my pretty one? With your little basket in your arm? I'm going to my grandmother to take her a good piece of cake for her Sunday treat tomorrow. And where does she live? Your grandmother. She lives at the other side of the wood, 
in the first house in the village, near the windmill, you know. Ah, yes, I know now, said the wolf. Well, that's just where I'm going. I shall get there before you, no doubt, with your little bits of legs, and I'll tell her you're coming to see her, then she'll wait for you. Thereupon, the wolf cuts across the wood, and in five minutes arrives at the grandmother's house. He knocks at the door. Talk, talk, no answer. He knocks louder. Nobody. Then he stands up on end, puts his two forepaws on the latch, and the door opens. Not a soul in the house. The old woman had risen early to sell herbs in town and she had gone off in such haste that she had left her bed unmade with her great nightcap on the pillow. Good, said the wolf to himself. I know what I'll do. He shuts the door, pulls on the grandmother's nightcap down to his eyes. Then he lies down all his length in the bed and draws the curtains. In the meantime, the good Blanchette went quietly on her way, as little girls do amusing herself here and there by picking Easter daisies, watching the little birds making their nests, and running after the butterflies which fluttered in the sunshine. At last she arrives at the door. Knock, knock. Who is there? says the wolf, softening his rough voice as best he can. It's me, Granny, your little golden hood. I'm bringing you a big piece of cake for your Sunday treat tomorrow. Press your finger on the latch. Then push, and the door opens. Why, you've got a cold, Granny, said she coming in. <clears throat> a little, a little, replied the wolf, pretending to cough. Shut the door well, my little lamb. Put your basket on the table, and then take off your frock and come and lie down by me. You shall rest a little. The good child undresses, but observe this. She kept her little hood upon her head. When she saw what a figure her granny cut in bed, the poor little thing was much surprised. Oh, cries she, how like you are to friend wolf, grandmother. That's on account of my nightcap, child, replies the wolf. Oh, what hairy arms you've got, grandmother. All the better to hug you, my child. Oh, what a big tongue you've got, grandmother. All the better for answering, child. Oh, what a mouthful of great white teeth you have, grandmother. That's for crunching little children with. And the wolf opened his jaws wide to swallow Blanchette. But she put down her head crying, Mama, Mama, and the wolf only caught her little hood. Thereupon, oh dear, oh dear, he draws back crying and shaking his jaw as if he had swallowed red hot coals. It was a little fire-colored hood that had burnt his tongue right down his throat. The little hood, you see, was one of those magic caps that they used to have in former times. In the stories, for making oneself invisible or invulnerable. So there was the wolf, with his throat burnt, jumping off the bed and trying to find the door, howling and howling as if all the dogs in the country were at his heels. Just at this moment, the grandmother arrives, returning from town with her long sack empty on her shoulder. Ah, Brigands, she cries. Wait a bit. Quickly she opens her sack, wide across the door, and the maddened wolf springs in head downwards. It is he now that is caught, swallowed like a letter in the post, for the brave old dame shuts her sack so, and she runs and empties it in the well, where the vagabond still howling tumbles in and is drowned. Ah, scoundrel, you thought you would crunch my little grandchild? Well, tomorrow we will make her a muff of your skin, and you yourself shall be crunched, for we will give your carcass to the dogs. Thereupon the grandmother hastened to dress poor Blanchette, who was still trembling with fear in the bed. Well, she said to her, without my little hood, where would you be now, darling? And to restore heart and legs to the child, she made her eat a good piece of her cake and drank a good draught of wine, after which she took her by the hand and led her back to the house. And then, who was it who scolded her when she knew all that had happened? It was the mother. But Blanchette promised over and over again that she would never more stop to listen to a wolf, 
so that at least the mother forgave her, and Blanchette, the little golden hood, kept her word. And in fine weather, she may still be seen in the fields with her pretty little hood, the color of the sun. But to see her, you must rise early. Price of three pounds. Three pounds? $15 for an old stick? Well, that's a very rare piece. It shows the wolf in the pentagram, the sign of the werewolf. Werewolf? What's that? Well, that's a human being who at certain times of the year changes into a wolf. You mean runs around on all fours and bites and snaps and bays at the moon? Oh, even worse than that sometimes. What big eyes you have, Grandma. The Old Man and the Wolf. Romania. In a small hut, far up in the mountains there, lived an old man with four small children. They were his grandchildren, and he loved them very much and took good care of them. Whenever he went into the village to buy food, he would say to his grandchildren, Dear little children, if anyone comes to the door, do not let them inside. Someday the wolf might come by and he would eat you up. Once he went into the village, and the wolf did come to the door, and called out, Dear children, open the door for me. The children thought about their grandfather's warning not to open the door, and they said nothing. Then the wolf said, Open up, your grandfather sent me. Then the oldest child said, Why did grandfather send you? The wolf answered, He sent a sweet cake for you children could no longer resist. They opened the door. The wolf sprang inside and ate up all four of the children. He looked around in the room to see if he might find something else to eat. He found a large bottle filled with brandy. He put the bottle to his mouth and drank it empty. He became so drunk that he could not move from the spots and had to lie down in the hut. Toward evening, the grandfather returned home and saw the snoring wolf lying on the floor in the middle of the room. At once, he knew what had happened to his grandchildren. He took a sharp knife and slid open the wolf's belly. The children jumped out, and the grandfather hid them. Then the grandfather took some dry lime, filled the wolf's belly with it, and sewed the opening shut. When the wolf woke up, he was thirsty and ran to the brook, where he drank a lot of water the lime in his belly began to boil and to burn, and the wolf burst apart and died a miserable death. Did you hear that, Mr. Twiddle? Of course I did, otherwise I'd be snuggling all in bed. Sounded like a wild animal. Might be some beast the gypsies left behind. <laughs> 